No sharp ideological cleavage divided Bahadur Shah from either of his brothers, and the new emperor was quick to pardon and accept any nobles who had supported his dead rivals. Despite the problems of Aurangzeb's last years, the empire passed, seemingly intact, to his son and successor. Nevertheless, Bahadur Shah, who was considerably more moderate in his approach to doctrinal purity, was still hampered by the after-effects of Aurangzeb's unremitting insistence on Islam as the only touchstone for loyalty. He never formally abolished the jizya, but the effort to collect the tax became ineffectual and dispirited. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we are continuing our discussion of the Mughal Empire. This is Episode 9-13, Bahadur Shah's Reign. Before we get started, let's do a very brief recap of where we are so far. After waging a fruitless war in the Deccan for a quarter of a century, Emperor Aurangzeb was old, sick, and tired. He declared victory in the Deccan in 1705 and retired to Ahmednagar. He died there in February 1707 at the age of 89. There is some discrepancy about how severely the war in the Deccan impacted the Mughal finances. However, Aurangzeb's focus on this campaign allowed the EIC, the Sikhs, and the Rajputs to grow in strength. It also allowed corruption and stagnancy to take root in the Mughal Empire. And now, with Aurangzeb dead, his three sons begin preparing to fight for an empire that was already in decline. Bahadur Shah We briefly discussed Aurangzeb's sons in episode 9-11, but it may do some good to recap them once again. The oldest son was Muazzam, also known as Shah Alam. Muazzam was born in October 1643, so he was 64 years old when his father, Emperor Aurangzeb, died. Muazzam was also the governor of Kabul in Afghanistan. The second oldest son was Muhammad Azam, also known as Azam Shah. He was born in June 1653, so he was about 54 years old when Aurangzeb died, and he was the governor of Gujarat. The youngest son was Kam Baksh, who was 40 years old when Aurangzeb died, and he had recently been appointed as the governor of Bijapur. These ages of these three men, they are fairly old, especially Muazzam, who was 64 years old, but this is because Aurangzeb ruled for a long time. He actually ruled for about 50 years, nearly half a century. So when he died, his sons were also getting up in age themselves. I mean, his youngest son was 40 years old. Well, once a period of mourning for their father had ended, all three of these contenders began their march towards Agra. This was the key, capturing Agra, capturing the Red Fort and the treasury at Agra. This was the key to ruling the Mughal Empire. In this race, Muhammad Azam had the advantage. He was the governor of Gujarat, which was fairly close to Agra. At least it was closer than the other, than the other two sons. So he should have reached the fort in Agra quicker than the others. Muazzam, as the governor of Kabul, was far off to the west, and Kambakhsh, who was the governor of Bijapur, he was all the way in the south. 
However, despite this advantage, Muhammad Azam seemed to do everything in his power to sabotage his chances at victory. For one thing, Muhammad Azam ignored advice and suggestions to take Muazzam seriously, and this would come back to hurt him later on. He also, another mistake he made was that he also refused to accept the support of Ghaziuddin, who's also known as Feroz Jung. Now, back in the day, Feroz Jung was a trusted and powerful noble and general under Aurangzeb. However, he had lost his sight in the late 1600s due to some sickness. Muhammad Azam, when he heard the offer from Feroz Jung to support him, he disrespectfully referred to him as, quote, that blind man. Well, this naturally alienated Feroz Jung's supporters and his family, including his son, Chen Khalish Khan, who was the current governor of Bijapur. He was soon to be replaced by Kam Baksh, but still, Chen Khalish Khan was someone whose help Muhammad Azam could use. Additionally, another relative of Ghaziuddin or Feroz Jung was a man named Muhammad Amin, another noble. He did join with Muhammad Azam, but he did so without much enthusiasm. Two other key nobles who were reluctant to join with Muhammad Azam in this fratricidal war were Zulfikar Khan and his father, Asad Khan. These two men tried to avoid getting involved, but Muhammad Azam insisted that they accompany him to Agra. Now, these names, Assad Khan, may sound familiar. He was Aurangzeb's vizier, or prime minister, and Zulfikar Khan was his son. Zulfikar Khan was also a noble and a general. So they obeyed, and they went along with Muhammad Azam on his, on his trip to Agra, but they deliberately traveled very, very slowly. On the other side of the coin, Aurangzeb's oldest son, Muazzam, the governor of Kabul, he was very strategic. He was very focused in his march towards Agra. His allies in Punjab had already cleared the way for him, and this allowed him to move through that region much faster. Then he also had his son Azim, who was bringing tribute from Bengal. Initially, this tribute from Bengal was supposed to go to Aurangzeb, his grandfather, who was Muazzam's father, but when he learned of the emperor's death, Azim quickly changed course for Agra, bringing the tribute with him because he knew that his father would be heading towards that way also. Well, as it turned out, Azim, that is Aurangzeb's grandson, that is Muazzam's son, he reached Agra first. And he easily occupied the city itself, but the commander of the Red Fort refused to surrender. The commander insisted that he would only give up the fort to a legitimate claimant to the throne, that is, one of Aurangzeb's direct sons. Not the grandson, the son. Well, there was another grandson headed towards Agra, and that was Bidar Bacht. Bidar Bacht was Muhammad Azam's son, and he was quickly moving towards Agra as well. He was hoping to secure the red fort for his father, just like Azim was hoping to do the same for his father. But the problem with Bidar Bakht was that his father didn't really trust him. Muazzam, Aurangzeb's oldest son, he trusted his son Azim coming from Bengal. But the second oldest son, Muhammad Azam, did not really trust his son Bidar Bakht. He was actually afraid, he was paranoid and suspicious and afraid that his son might betray him and claim the fort and the throne for himself. 
So Muhammad Azam deliberately slowed his son down. He ordered his son to wait for him in Dhulpur, which is about 34 miles from Agra. Well, while this may have allowed Muhammad Azam to catch up with his son, it also cost him the element of surprise because no one's going to be surprised when you have an army sitting 34 miles away. Even worse for Muhammad Azam was that this delay gave Muazzam time to travel from Kabul to Agra. Muazzam arrived in Agra before the other two sons and the fort's commander did indeed surrender to him. So now, even though he was the furthest away in Kabul, Muazzam now controlled the treasuries of Kabul, where he was already the governor before his father died, as well as Delhi, which is very close to Agra, and you had to pass through Delhi to get to Agra, Bengal, where his son Azim was the governor, and Agra itself, which he now occupied. This gave Muazzam a significant advantage over the other two contenders, especially Muhammad Azam. Now, Muazzam, who now had Agra and Delhi and Kabul and Bengal, he wanted to avoid bloodshed. He offered Muhammad Azam, the second oldest son of Aurangzeb, six provinces. Now, this was significant because Aurangzeb had only given Muhammad Azam four provinces, but Muhammad Azam wanted the whole shebang. He wanted it all. So then Muazzam suggested, well, let's have a one-on-one battle, a winner-take-all, just you and me. We can avoid having all of this unnecessary bloodshed between our soldiers. You and I fight, and whoever wins, we keep it all. Again, Muhammad Azam refused to compromise. Seems like this guy was just itching for a fight. But the reality was that Muhammad Azam did not respect his brother. He did not... He did not respect his older brother Muazzam's abilities to lead an army, nor to lead the nation. Perhaps because he was 10 years older, who knows, but for whatever reason, he really did not respect his older brother Muazzam. And so with Muhammad Azam refusing both options to compromise, there's no choice left but to fight. So both brothers assembled their armies near the village of Jajau. So this led to the Battle of Jajau, one of the fiercest and bloodiest battles of all of the fratricidal wars within the Mughal Empire. This battle took place on June 20th, 1707. To put that in a frame of reference, Aurangzeb died in February 1707. Before we get to that battle, I want to read you a quote about the way things were during this period of time. In the years that followed his death, the authority of the Mughal state began to dissolve, first in the Deccan and then, as the Maratha armies headed northwards under their great war leader Baji Rao, in larger and larger areas of central and western India too. Mughal succession disputes and a string of weak and powerless emperors exacerbated the sense of imperial crisis. Three emperors were murdered, one was, in addition, first blinded with a hot needle. The mother of one ruler was strangled, and the father of another forced off a precipice on his elephant. In the worst year of all, 1719, four different emperors occupied the peacock throne in rapid succession. According to the Mughal historian, Khaiduddin Ilahabadi, the emperor spent years and fortunes attempting to destroy the foundations of Maratha power, but this accursed tree could not be pulled up by the roots. William Dalrymple the Anarchy, the Relentless Rise of the East India Company. Kambaksh 
We'll discuss the Battle of Jiajiao in just a few minutes later on in this episode, but for now, let's turn our attention towards the Deccan, where Kam Baksh was the ruler. Kam Baksh, as you know, was the final contender for the throne. This was Aurangzeb's youngest and his favorite son. Just before he died, Aurangzeb appointed Kam Baksh as the governor of Bijapur, which is in the Deccan. Upon receiving news of the emperor's death, many Turani nobles abandoned Kambaksh's camp. They abandoned his side. Turani were people who originated in Central Asia. They did not consider Kambaksh to be a serious contender for the throne. Everyone, including these Turani nobles, they figured that the main contestants for the throne would be either Muhammad Azam or Muazam. Kambaksh was not considered a, a serious contender. In March 1707, remember Aurangzeb died in February 1707, Kambaksh traveled to Bijapur to take up his new position as the governor. However, by the time he arrived, his army was much smaller than what he had started out with. Well, the fort commander, Niaz Khan, who was the nephew of Chen Kilich Khan, he initially refused to open the gates for Kambaksh. Chen Kalich Khan, he was one of the relatives of the blind man that Muhammad Azam had disrespected. Chen Kalich Khan was the current governor of Bijapur. So his nephew, Niaz Khan, who was also the commander of the fort in Bijapur, he refused to open the gate for Aurangzeb's youngest son, Kam Baksh. But after lengthy negotiations, a noble named Ahsan Khan finally convinced Niaz Khan, that is the fort commander, to surrender and Kambaksh was finally allowed inside the city of Bijapur. Now, for his services, for, for facilitating this surrender, Ahsan Khan was appointed as the paymaster of the army. Kambaksh then made another noble, a man named Hakim Muhsin. He made him the prime minister and gave him the title of Takarub Khan. Kambaksh declared himself emperor and gave himself the title of Dean Pana, which means protector of the faith. He had coins minted in his name. He had the khutbah read in his name. But the only thing he really had any authority over was the Deccan. His brothers were still fighting over the throne in Agra. Ahsan Khan, that is Kambaksh's new paymaster of the army, the guy who had facilitated the surrender, he had to deal with some rebellions in the Deccan, but eventually he managed to bring the region under control, and the capital of the Deccan was moved to Hyderabad due to its larger size. Over time, Tokorub Khan and Ahsan Khan began to have some disagreements. So now these two men began to have some hostility and differences with each other. And these are two fairly powerful men, even though they were, their power was limited to the Deccan. Within Kambakh's authority, they were pretty powerful. Ahsan Khan was the paymaster of the army. That means he was the guy responsible for paying the soldiers. So you can imagine how much authority and power he would have. And Tokarub Khan was the prime minister. Well, Takarub Khan began to whisper in Kambaksh's ears and convinced him that Ahsan Khan was plotting to overthrow him. To deal with this supposed plot, Kambaksh began executing Ahsan Khan's friends and associates in the most brutal ways. One man named Rustam Khan was trampled under an elephant's foot. Another man named Saif Khan, he had his hands amputated and his tongue torn out of his mouth before being trampled by horses. And several others of Ahsan Khan's associates also met similar 
grotesque, horrible deaths. Until finally, Ahsan Khan himself was arrested and tortured to death. The Battle of Jajau Going back to Agra where Muhammad Azam and Muazzam are preparing to fight. The battle almost began by accident when Bidar Bakht, that is Muhammad Azam's son, stumbled upon an advanced camp of Muazzam's army. Bidar Bakht mistakenly believed this was the main army, so he launched an attack and this small contingent, which was just a portion of Muazzam's uh, full army, eventually fled. And despite his commander's advice to the contrary, Bidar prematurely sounded the victory dumbs because he believed he had just won the war for his father. However, within an hour, Muazzam's main force appeared on the horizon and Bidar Bach realized that he had made a big mistake and the fight was only just beginning. Muhammad Azam, however, was taken by surprise when this happened. He didn't have his full military altogether, but in addition to being taken by surprise, he was a bit of an arrogant fool. Muhammad Azam was a great fighter, as we'll see, but he was very arrogant. He did not believe that his brother Muazzam was fit to lead the military. As we mentioned, he did not take Muazzam seriously. Despite all of the mistakes that he had made so far, alienating some of his allies, his son proclaiming victory when the battle hadn't even really started yet, being taken by surprise when Muazzam's army suddenly appeared. Despite all these mistakes that he had made, Muhammad Azam still believed that he would have a quick victory. In fact, he was so confident that he would defeat his brother, he did not even bother to put his artillery to the front. It was a common strategy to have your artillery in the front to open fire on the enemy to try to wear down their front lines ahead of time. You don't have your soldiers running straight into the other, the other guy's artillery facing you because they'll get mowed down. You have to use your artillery to wear them down first and then you bring your soldiers and your cavalry in as needed. But Muhammad Azam was, as I mentioned, an arrogant fool. He did not bring his artillery to the front, whereas Muazzam, he came fully prepared. He had cannons, swivel guns, rockets, and a whole bunch more. And so his artillery, Muazzam's artillery, just completely destroyed Muhammad Azam's army just with the opening salvos. With all of this destruction raining down on them, as a result of Muazzam's artillery barrage against Muhammad Azam, two prominent Rajput Rajas were killed. They were killed during this artillery fire, and when they died, their armies who were under their command, they left the battle. So right there, Muhammad Azam now lost a significant portion of his army, in addition to those who were again, who again wiped out by Muazzam's artillery. Also during the battle, a dust storm began, which added to the confusion of the whole thing. Zulfikar Khan, he was the son of Assad Khan, who had been Aurangzeb's former prime minister. These are the two men who reluctantly joined Muhammad Azam's army. Well, during this battle, Zulfikar Khan, who was serving as a general under Muhammad Azam, was wounded. Zulfikar Khan advised Muhammad Azam to make a strategic withdrawal. But Muhammad Azam refused to take this advice. Instead, he replied, Takhta, takhta which in Urdu means the throne or the gallows, which basically means do or die, fight to the death. 
Zulfikar Khan, he was very shocked by this statement, and so he left the battlefield. Perhaps he didn't want to fight for a man who was so willing to throw his life away for his own gain. Several others also did the same. Bidar Bakht and his son Bidar Dil, these were Muhammad Azam's son and grandson, were both riding the same elephant when they were hit by musket fire. As Bidar Dil, that is the grandson, was receiving medical treatment, Bidar Bakht, that is the son, he was shot again, but this time it killed him. Muhammad Azam's other son, named Wala Jah, he also received numerous wounds and injuries and lost consciousness due to blood loss. When this happened, Wala Jah's Mahud withdrew to where Muhammad Azam was directing the battle. Mahud is the name of an elephant handler in southern India. Meanwhile, Muhammad Azam was also riding an elephant with his third son, Ali Tabar. All he had left were a few hundred horsemen to protect him, and Muhammad Azam had received several wounds during the fight himself. Realizing that the battle was most likely lost, he began to despair, believing that he had been abandoned by Allah and by fate, not taking any sort of accountability for the mistakes and missteps that he had made on his own. But then his mahout was killed. And so Muhammad Azam jumped quickly to the elephant's neck to try to take control, but then he was shot in the head by a musket ball and he was killed. And this essentially sealed the victory for Muazzam. With his death, Muazzam's forces rushed in to try to take control of the elephant and Muhammad Azam's personal bodyguards fought them off trying to keep them from grabbing the man's body. But one of Muazzam's commanders broke through grabbed Muhammad Azam's body and took off his head. And then the two elephants, one holding Muhammad Azam's head, the other holding his son Bidar Bakh's body, were led to Muazzam's camp. The following day, Muhammad Azam's other son, Walajah, his body was found as well. So in the Battle of Jajau, 12,000 horsemen lost their lives and thousands were injured. Amongst the injured were two men named Hassan Ali Khan and Hussein Ali Khan. They were amongst the Sayyids of Barha. The Sayyids of Barha, their clan claims that they are descended from Prophet Muhammad wasallam, through his daughter Fatima. Remember these two names, Hassan Ali Khan and Hussein Ali Khan, because they are going to play significant roles in the future. But that's in a future episode. The day after the Battle of Jajal, Muazzam Shah Alam ascended the throne as Bahadur Shah. Bahadur Shah means the brave king. He granted titles to his four sons. His oldest son, Muizuddin, became Jahandar Shah. He was also appointed the governor of Multan and Tahta. Multan is in central Pakistan. Tahta is in southern Pakistan. Azim, the prince who had helped to capture Agra in the first place, he was given the title Azim Ushan, which means the one with grandeur. He remained as the governor of Bengal and Bihar. He was already the governor before this. Rafi al-Qadr, he received the title of Rafi al-Shan, which means exalted of grandeur. He was appointed the governor of Kabul. Kujisa Akhtar received the title of Jahan Shah, which means world ruler, kind of opposite of Shah Jahan. He was appointed governor of Malwa. Emperor Bahadur Shah also appointed Mu'nim Khan as his prime minister. He was the governor of Punjab during Aurangzeb's reign, and he might have been a Muslim Rajput. The two Sayyid brothers, that is, those two brothers, 
Hassan Ali Khan and Hussein Ali Khan, who were from the clan that claimed descent from Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, these two brothers were given the governorship of Allahabad and Patna. Both of these cities are in northeastern India, and this marked the beginning of the Sayyid's rise to power as kingmakers. Not going to happen in this episode, but before we end this season, inshallah, we will discuss them in much more detail. These Sayyids would eventually become a significant threat to the Mughal Empire. Aurangzeb had previously advised his son to always treat the Sayyids, that is, this clan that claimed to be descended from Prophet Muhammad. I'm not exactly sure if they were. A lot of people claim that, and I really don't agree or don't accept most of these claims. But be that as it may, the people of the Mughal Empire apparently seem to accept it. Nonetheless, Aurangzeb advised his sons to always treat these Sayyids with respect, but also warned them to never give them positions of power. Aurangzeb understood their ambitious nature, and we are going to see that in the coming episodes, inshallah. Asad Khan, that is Aurangzeb's former prime minister, he received two titles, Nizamul Mulk and Asafu Dawla, which means administrator of the country, and he also received a rank of 8,000 horses. His son, Zulfikar Khan, the one who had advised the strategic withdrawal, he was granted the title of Amir al-Umrah and Bakhshir al-Mumalik, which means noblest of the nobles and paymaster general of the army, respectively, and he also got a rank of 7,000 horses. Over the coming years, Zulfikar Khan's power and significance would greatly increase, but we're getting just ahead of ourselves. Inshallah, we'll see that in the coming episodes. Zina Tunisa, that was Muhammad Azam's sister. She was also the only surviving daughter of Arangzeb. She was obviously upset at her brother's death. She did not come to congratulate Bahadur Shah for his victory. Zina Tunisa and Muhammad Azam, they shared both the same father and same mother, whereas Bahadur Shah had a different mother, though of course obviously the same father, Arangzeb. Nonetheless, despite her refusing to come and congratulate Bahadur Shah, she was still given the title of Padishah Begum, which means empress. She was also given a rank of the first lady of the court and a very generous stipend. Bahadur Shah versus Kambakhsh. So now we have one brother dead, the other one basically controlling the capital and the treasury. That is Bahadur Shah, but we still have Kambaksh. Kambaksh is down to the Deccan. Bahadur Shah actually offered peace to his youngest brother. He gave Kambaksh a very generous offer. He offered to waive the tribute of the Deccan, meaning Kambaksh didn't have to pay his brother any tribute from the Deccan. No money, no taxes from the Deccan. Keep it all yourself. Only thing he would have to do, he would have to strike coins and read the khutbah in Bahadur Shah's name. This so far, as we have seen so far in our series on the Mughals, this was unprecedented. Kambach would have complete autonomy in the Deccan, rule the Deccan as he pleased, he would just have to acknowledge his brother as the emperor. Bahadur Shah sent his envoy, a man named Matabar Khan, down to the Deccan to get Kambach's response to this offer. Once again, Takarub Khan, that is Kambach's prime minister, his vizier, the guy who had convinced him to kill Ahsan Khan and so many of his compatriots and friends. He again manipulated Kambaksh. 
he convinced Kambox that Aurangzeb's envoy, Matabar Khan, and his companions were actually there to assassinate him. So they invited Matabar Khan and his party to a feast, and when they arrived, they were quickly overpowered and arrested. The very next day, most of the people in this entourage for Matabar Khan, that was really an envoy of Bahadur Shah, most of them were hanged, and Matabar Khan was thrown into a prison. When Bahadur Shah learned what happened to his envoy Matabar Khan, and when he learned what happened to Ahsan Khan and all the other people that Kambash had killed, Bahadur Shah realized that he had to do something. This man was crazy and there was no way to make any sort of peace with him. So he moved towards the Deccan under the pretense with the excuse of offering prayers at his father Aurangzeb's grave. But it's kind of hard to move all these miles with a huge army and word eventually got out that Bahadur Shah was in the area with this huge army. Kambaksh had lost the trust and loyalty of many of his soldiers and generals already because of the way he acted by killing so many people who were supposedly allied to him. And when Takarab Khan informed him that the soldiers were deserting, Kambaksh just brushed it aside. He believed, this is how silly he was, he believed, Kambaksh believed that he would win no matter what. Why did he believe this? Because that's what his astrologers told him. Yeah, his astrologers had told him, had foretold that there was no way he could lose this battle. So Kambaksh replied, I don't need any soldiers. Allah is enough for me and the best will happen. Well, we'll see how that turns out. So the battle began on January 13th, 1709, near Hyderabad. Kambaksh had about five or 600 cavalry and some matchlock men. He didn't have that many cannons, but he had a whole bunch of rockets that kind of made up for his lack of cannons. However, due to his harsh behavior, due to the mistrust that he has sown in his army from his ridiculous, murderous ways, he had lost most of the capable generals within his army. He only had one guy left, one good general left, a man named Abdurrazak Khan Lari. Abdurrazak Khan Lari was a noble who had previously served under the Qutub Shahis, which was the ruling dynasty of the Golconda Sultanate before Rongzeb captured it. Initially, however, with the two armies lined up, both sides seemed to be hesitant to start the battle. And in fact, things were moving so slow that Bahadur Shah decided to take a nap. Well, when he took a nap, while he was sleeping, Zulfikar Khan, he ordered the war drums to start playing because Zulfikar Khan had a personal grudge against Kambak and he wanted to get things started. And so with that order, the battle began. Now, despite his brutal nature, despite being a murderous tyrant, Kambak was a skilled warrior. Kambak was riding an elephant, which of course put him higher than most of the other soldiers around him. And he was an excellent archer and he was just wreaking havoc on Bahadur Shah's soldiers, just picking them off with his arrows. Just think of Legolas in Lord of the Rings. Just think of that. He was just knocking these guys out one by one. The fighting was very fierce, but eventually Kambaksh received several wounds and his son Barikola, who was also with him on the elephant, he was also severely wounded. And eventually both men, Kambaksh and his son, lost consciousness due to excessive blood loss. And they were eventually captured by some of the Afghans serving under Bahadur Shah. 
So once the battle was decided in Bahadur Shah's favor and the fighting stopped, Kam Baksh and his three sons were taken to an infirmary tent where they could receive some treatment. Bahadur Shah, the emperor, he sent his best surgeons and doctors to try to heal up his brother and his nephews, but Kam Baksh, he refused any sort of treatment. So eventually, Bahadur Shah himself visited the infirmary tent to see what was going on. He assisted with cleaning and dressing Kambaksh's wounds and even tried to feed him some soup. Kambaksh, arrogant as always, initially declined, but eventually he started taking a few sips of the soup that his brother offered him. Bahadur Shah then said that he did not want to see his brother in such a state. And Kambaksh replied, as arrogant as ever, that he too did not want to see his brother in such a state, meaning he did not want to see his brother as the victor, as the winner of this conflict. Nonetheless, a few hours after their meeting, Kambaksh died from his wounds at the age of 42. I'm going to read you a very short excerpt that summarizes this whole fratricidal episode. No sympathy need be wasted, affirms Vincent Smith, or neither Azam or Kambaksh, who are both unfit to rule. The former is described as being very choleric, a debauchee, rough and discourteous to everybody, also avaricious. The latter was a half-insane tyrant who behaved with outrageous cruelty, doing acts to his servants, companions, and confidants, such as before I never saw nor ear heard. Dirk Collier, The Mughals in Their India Rajput Troubles Thousands of Rajputs were among Bahadur Shah's forces as he marched towards the Deccan to fight Kambaksh. And as they passed through the Rajput lands of Malwa, three Rajput Rajas, that is, three Rajput kings or chiefs or commanders, they quietly separated from Bahadur Shah's main army along with their troops. These three Rajput Rajas were Ajit Singh, Jai Singh, and Durgadas. And all three of these men were discussed in episode 9-10. Ajit Singh was the supposed son of Jaswan Singh. He had been brought to Delhi as an infant to be raised in the court, but his mother escaped with him, fearing that he be raised as a Muslim. Durga Das was from the Rator Rajputs. He had helped Ajit Singh and his mother escape from Delhi. And then there was Jai Singh, who was the Rana of Udaipur. He became Rana after the Mughal-Rajput War ended in 1681. These three Rajput leaders joined forces with the very troublesome Raja Amar Singh in Udaipur. And together, they began launching attacks on Mughal garrisons within the Rajput territory. And except for Ajmer, they were able to drive the Mughals out of most of these lands. In May 1709, these Rajputs sent an emissary to meet with Bahadur Shah as he was returning to Agra from the Deccan. The Battle of Kambaksh had taken place in January 1709. Now it was May 1709 and Bahadur Shah was returning to Agra. The Rajput emissaries wanted to explain their actions and ask for the emperor's forgiveness. Well, Bahadur Shah, he granted them an audience in Toda, which is in the modern Indian state of Rajasthan, about 130 miles west of Agra, and Bahadur Shah eventually forgave them. In June 1709, the three Rajput Rajas visited Bahadur Shah, reaffirmed their loyalty, regained his trust, and got his permission to return home in peace.
So that will wrap it up for today. In the next episode, inshallah, we're going to discuss how Bahadur Shah's short reign, and it was very short, was interrupted by a newly militant Sikh revolt. And we'll see. We will discuss yet another fratricidal war. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet-Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. So this is the beginning of the Soviet-Afghan war. We'll come back to the politics and the military stuff in the next episode, inshallah. Let's talk a little bit more about this country, Afghanistan, in general. Particularly Afghanistan's geography. I'm sure you know, Afghanistan is a landlocked country. No beaches, no oceans, no coasts. It's bordered by Pakistan to the east and south, Iran to the west, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan to the north, and China to the northeast. Afghanistan's geography includes mountains, plateaus, and valleys, but we all know the star of the show are Afghanistan's mountains. Those are the most famous, or depending on your perspective, infamous part of Afghanistan's geography. These mountains have played a critical role in Afghanistan's climate, its ecology, its settlements, and even, of course, most importantly, perhaps, its history. These mountains are the Hindu Kush mountain range. They run straight through the center, the heart of Afghanistan. The Hindu Kush mountains is actually a collection of several mountain ranges and plateaus. It extends over 930 miles, that's 1,500 kilometers for you non-Americans, 930 miles from central Afghanistan to northern Pakistan. And the Hindu Kush itself is actually part of the greater Himalaya mountain system and includes some of the highest mountains in the world. Now, these mountains have a major impact on Afghanistan's climate. The high peaks of these mountains in Afghanistan block moisture coming up from the Indian Ocean. 
And this creates something called a rain shadow effect. Here's what the rain shadow effect is. As the air tries to climb over the mountains, its moisture falls on the eastern side of the mountains. This results in a wet and moist environment, particularly what we see in northern India and western Pakistan. But as the air goes over the mountains, it begins to descend the other side of the mountain. It starts to warm up and it loses its moisture. And the result is the harsh and arid climate of central and eastern Afghanistan. We see the same thing in the Rocky Mountains in the United States. As warm air comes from the Gulf of Mexico, it tries to climb over the mountains, the Rocky Mountains. It drops its moisture on the states of Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas. As it goes over the mountains and begins to descend on the western side of the Rockies, it loses its moisture, the air begins to warm up, and we get places like Utah and its desert, uh, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico to a certain extent, things like that, and even some parts of California. And this weather pattern also gives Afghanistan very long and severe winters. So the northern and central regions of Afghanistan have cold winters with heavy snowfall, while the southern and western regions have hot summers with very little rainfall. The Hindu Kush mountains also have played a role in human settlement in Afghanistan. The rough terrain of the mountains, the isolated valleys in the mountains, they've always provided a refuge for various ethnic groups within Afghanistan. And these isolated uh, valleys and mountains allow for these groups to isolate themselves from the rest of the world. Living in these isolated regions within Afghanistan that are very difficult to reach have allowed many of these individual settlements to maintain their cultural traditions and their cultural practices even till today. I've read somewhere, and I don't remember where, but I read somewhere that there are still pagans, still people, idolaters who have never been exposed to Islam or Christianity or any other uh, monotheistic faith as yet. They, they're just so isolated. They, they are still practicing the religion from before Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. That's what I've heard, and Allah knows best. Let me correct myself. That's what I read, and Allah knows best. Anyway. These mountains of the Hindu Kush have also been a barrier for invading armies. And because very few armies, probably no armies, have been able to successfully penetrate all of these mountains, it has also helped to preserve Afghanistan's overall independence and culture. We're going to talk about some of these previous attempts by various uh, militaries and empires to conquer Afghanistan and the results probably in the next episode, inshallah. If not the next episode, the one after that. But with all of these uh, mountains and isolated regions within the Afghanistan's mountains, there's also allowed for there to be many different languages spoken in parts of Afghanistan that are only spoken in those parts of Afghanistan. Nowhere else in the world. There are certain languages within Afghanistan, within some of these isolated villages that are not spoken anywhere else in the world.